All right, so we are finally ready to take all of our knowledge about wine and try to bring it to bear on the Purim and the Megil Sester. So we did discuss last time that really the beginning of Megillus Esther and the Gemara says the trigger for the decree against the Jewish people, the annihilation of the Jewish people was because of, because of Sudus Akashverish, the Feast of Akashverish, which the Gemara itself points out is very difficult because firstly, it doesn't seem like such a grave transgression the, to come to a feast, especially considering that the Gemara says that when the Pasuk says that it was done uh, in accordance with every person's preferences and needs, so Rava says that, that means that each person received exactly what he needed, even that for the Jews it was, everything was, was, was kosher. So, so we pointed out that that's difficult. Additionally, the difficulty is that this is only limited to the Jews of Shushar, Shushan Habira, capital. As the Jews there, they came to the feast. But because the empire spans uh, the more or less the known, wo- known world, and uh, all the Jews have a decree of annihilation against them, what do they do to be annihilated? That's the question that we asked last time, and we answered, sneer. The Nebuchadnezzar, is that it? Yes. Like when, we left, uh, when we left Israel, they made us uh, bow to a huge statue of Nebuchadnezzar, and that we were kind of high up for a Bodhisattva there, but since uh, that door was already facing exile, Hashem didn't find it, uh, he kind of had a rough manute, and said, I'm not going to annihilate you at this point. So then um, after that, we saw that even like the, the slightest inclination towards something that would even be considered close to doing a Bodhisattva would bring down annihilation. So we saw in the feast that... Uh, there was a, we talked about the possibility of like the little idols, which is the representation thereof of the uh, the wine that was being served by non-Jews. Exactly. It means on some level we're going to work on that right now. On some level, that drinking feast of Akashverish was also a form of idol worship. Okay, uh, and, and that's the thing that we spoke out that wine has this extra delicate property of where it could be extraordinarily uplifting and and uh, help a person to really connect the his mind and his spirituality and his soul with his heart and uh, and really bring joy to the world but on the other hand it's very easily could be corrupted and turned into a vehicle of just taking a person's intellect and just dragging it down and stuffing it into the mud. So as we saw from the, the first sheet that uh, tea rush can either mean that the wine gives you a rush or it takes away your rush. So if you're, I'm wondering if there's a connection there between them. Um, makes you impoverished. Those other. Either it gives you a head or makes you a rush. Makes you emptied out, which means you've got no brains in your head. Yeah. Right. So is there a connection to that? In, um, isn't there an idea that like um, that anger is a form of idol worship? That uh, that if you have too much cast, it's like you're forgetting like yeah. the ichor. So are we, are we also saying that maybe that like if you went if you went there with the intention to have to do tea rosh of the emptying of the rosh, that would be kind of similar to like forgetting. Maybe the anger is a particular is a is a particular facet. Not everyone that drinks in a 
very physical, debasing type of way. Not, not want to get angry, right? Some some of these people, they, they act, um, they kind of behave like animals. Um, I hear. Maybe there's something there. Um, okay, so. So, now, so, so again, like I mentioned to you guys last time, where the main source that this is going to be based off of is the Maharal's long discussion about uh, Stam Yenam, non-Jewish wine. He more or less talks about it in every one of his farm because in his days uh, there was a big push by some of the reform elements in, uh, in amongst the Jews in Europe not reform Judaism, but <laughs> but people that were looking to uh, change some things, and, and especially this was an easy target because wine was extremely expensive. Jewish wine. Where are you going to get Jewish wine? In, in, you know, in in Europe, it's very hard. Jews weren't allowed to be farmers, etc. They weren't really in that industry, and uh, the claim was, yeah, but the the, uh, the, the non-Jews don't do wine libations like they used to back in the days. The, pag- the pagans would do animal sacrifices and they would do wine libations and they would actually do stuff like that with wine. Nowadays, Europe is a Christian. Uh, they don't do animal sacrifices. They don't have altars that they would pour the wine onto or whatever. So that entire rabbinical decree is not relevant. That, that was the claim. So the morale uh, wrote much against this. And he was explaining how there's a, when the sages talk about an enactment, a decree, they reveal a tefach, but they conceal tefachayim. That's the expression. Megal tefach, mechasa tefachayim. That they only reveal to you a little part of the of their motivation of what actually they were they were doing this for. And uh, so, yeah, the the external reason is, you know. Uh, that it's related to Yainasa, but there's a spiritual reality which is inescapable when it comes to drinking non-Jewish wine. And that's what he's... So he actually quotes a Zohar, which is fairly unusual for the Maral. He was an expert uh, master Kabbalist, but he very rarely does he quote a Zohar. He usually tries to keep things that are hidden, hidden and just explain things. But here he quotes a, a, a Zohar, which describes the difference between a non-Jewish wine and Jewish wine, okay? And <clears throat> number one, the, we'll start with a Gemorrah. The Gemorrah warns us that we should be careful not to confuse the letter Ayn with the letter Aleph. Now, seemingly, it means... Um, in the form of pronunciation, right? The, the two... Uh, letters can sound similar if you if you don't know what you're doing here. Who wants to demonstrate to us what a what's the difference between an aleph and an ayin? I Oh, there you are. Oh, Michael's got a good one over there. Okay, right. So the point is, sadly, indeed. We actually don't know how to distinguish, which the Gemara says, from all the letters, the most important two letters not to confuse is the Aleph and the Ayin. 
Additionally, the Mara points out that both letters pictorially look quite similar. They both have a diagonal line with a something like a yud coming into it. The difference is that the aleph has one more diagonal line from the bottom, a little, little yud coming up to it, and the one the eye is the big diagonal is facing this way, and the aleph the big diagonal is facing the other way. But otherwise, they're very similar in how they're drawn. Now, why is it so important not to confuse the ayin with the aleph? Answer is because ayin has a numerical value of 70, and aleph has a numerical value of 1. Okay? Uh, 70 represents the 70 nations of the world, and the aleph represents the one and only nation that is chosen by Hashem, the Jewish people. Okay? So, now what, what's the concern that a person might might confuse the Ayn and the Aleph? So, I'll read to you a passage from the Derek Okay, so this is uh, in the Derek Hashem, Chalik Base, Perik Dalit, says the Ramchal. Well, from one of the deeper things from the way that Hashem runs the world is the topic of the Jewish people and the nations of the world. That because from the perspective of nature, human nature, the two of them appear to be equal in truth, absolutely equal. And from the perspective of things that have to do with the Torah, with spirituality, they are different in a huge way. And they are separate, like two completely different species. Two different species. They launches into the in, into that discussion. Okay, so that is the tremendous danger, and we all understand that when the Jewish people live amongst the non-Jews and you're rubbing shoulders and you're interacting with them, so one notice, one can't help but notice that they are pretty much very similar to us, if not identical. Small, I mean, obviously all people have slightly different nuances because of their backgrounds and whatever, but uh, but it, it looks indistinguishable. Says the Ramchal, even though externally, naturally, it looks indistinguishable, but spiritually, two of them are completely different. And that's why it's so important to keep them separate in one's understanding and also in conduct to keep them separate. We didn't discuss this, but the other reason that the Gemara gives for the prohibition of non-Jewish wine is a Mishum Chastus because of intermarriage. It means if you can drink with them, then you can 
become buddies with them, become buddies with them. Next thing is your son's gonna marry their daughter. And that'll be that'll be the end of that. Yeah? So so just like it turns out the Jewish people have to be kept separate from the non-Jewish people. Not that the non-Jewish people are not good. They're wonderful. We, we want only good for them. But the Jewish people have to be kept separate in order to maintain their identity. The Aleph and the Ein are so similar, you put them together and you can't tell anymore. And worse than you can't tell anymore, Hazal have a principle, what's called something that's bottle bishishim. Right? Once you have you have something that um, falls into anything that has more than sixty parts against it, it, it disintegrates. It, it, it loses its identity. So the aleph to the ayin is 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 that is that bitter. So the Jewish people mixed in with the non-Jews. The uniqueness of the Jewish people is lost, which is bad for everyone. Okay, so that's that, that's what ha- that's what was happening at the feast, right? The Jewish people are mixing with the non-Jewish people, specifically drinking, which we discussed before that the numerical value of wine is seventy, and we pointed out that seventy wine is a double-edged sword. Oh. There's a double-edged sword. On the one hand, it can make a person fully external. You can take all of your internality, all of your spirituality, and just connect it down to the world of physicality, and it's lost. On the other hand, if you can maintain a connection to your spirituality, if you can maintain your das, like the Gemara says, someone who's, who, who can maintain his das has has a, he's like a member of the Sanhedrin. He's a, uh, he has the das of the Shivim Zekenim, not by coincidence. Shivim Zekenim, the seventy elders of the Sanhedrin. Sanhedrin are called the Ene Hador, the eyes of the generation. So the eye in the seventy. And the Aleph, the one, Maral points out, never mix. You will not find a single root in the Hebrew language, three-letter root, the Hebrew language that has the Aleph and the Ein in the same word. Right. In, in the root of it. In the root of the one, yeah. So, I mean, to like vowels, it's like A and, again? It's like a and O. So, I don't know, you know, meaning it's, yeah, I guess. I mean, are there other, other, um... Olive and hay, iron and hay. In a root? Yeah. Shaha, shin hey hey, to delay. Or Shah uh, is to be dust. Shin Ein Hey. Rashi Parshish Kaisar.
the, the exception is the Aleph can come to qualify the Ayin, which means it can come as a prefix, the root can have an Ayin in it, and the Aleph can be used as a prefix to direct, to instruct the Ayin what to do. And that's what it means. We're, we're meant to be a nation, unto the, uh, a light unto the nations. We're meant to guide them and make their lives better, help them, help them to live the most fulfilled lives they can. But we can only do that if we are aloof. You know, English word aloof. Yeah. The Hebrew word is aleph. Interesting, right? But but the Hebrew letter aleph for sure is spelled aleph lamed pei, which spells backwards pella. That old pella pella means something that's separate. So it's interesting that the Hebrew, the English language has aloof. You know, maybe cute, maybe comes from somewhere, don't know. But the Aleph letter certainly is Pella, which means aloof, which means separate. Um, okay, so... so when is the 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 letter ayin talks about the i right now the i is fundamentally uh, a dangerous place the i we know is a instrument of tremendous harm the uh, the Gemara says that if, a, if one could go through a graveyard and see the cause of death for the people that are buried there, one would discover that almost everyone that's buried there is because of Einhar, a bad eye. Why? Because the eye is an external thing. I see you externally, first of all. I see your externality, number one. Number two, the eye notices every tiny little defect every de- it's incredible we're having we're having renovations here I was walking by and I see one of the edges of the wall is crooked so I say to the country like, isn't that wall crooked so he's like no I don't think so it takes this like meter long um, level right <laughs> puts it up against the wall but see it's straight I'm like no it's crooked, I can see. So then he like moved it around, and then he found like, yeah, it was actually a bit crooked. But like, the point is, with my eye, I wasn't even looking for anything. With my eye, I saw right away, right, what, what like he was having to use an instrument, right, to, you know, the, the, that's the accuracy our eye can tell things. Incredible. So the point is, it can be an extraordinarily critical tool that you know is totally involved in this world and pulls a person away. That's now and like Rev was saying that it sees flaws. I if you see everything's good, you won't notice everything's alright. Right. If you see something's odd out of place. You zoom in on that one thing. Yeah. Exactly. Right, right. So that's uh that and uh, now additionally, again the Aleph and the Ayn, these two very similar letters, they sound similar they're shaped very similar, but they're so different. One is so external, that's the Ein, and one is so internal, that's the Aleph. 
where do we see such a thing? From the very beginning, the Jewish people. There were two twin boys that were born. Esau and Yaakov. They were twins, which means they looked very similar. They even had similar sounding voice, right? To the point that when Yitzchak was blind, he couldn't tell the difference between them. The only differences were hairiness, right? And the content of what was being said, right? But as far as the actual, it's not like Esau had like a deep, raspy voice and Yaakov had like a high, squeaky voice that he would have never been able to pull it off. Yeah? Yitzhak only picked up on the fact that this might be Yaakov, not Esau, because he said, Hashem, your God, sent me this prey very quickly. And Esau wouldn't have said that. But they're twins. They're very, very similar. Yeah? And yet, they couldn't possibly be different. Why is that? So the Maharal says an incredible thing. He says, every creature, everything that exists is necessarily different from everything else that exists. If the two of them were to be the same, then there would be no room for the two of them to exist. Only one of them could exist. Because everything is coming to do its job. There's not going to be redundancy. It's now incredible. Being that, Esav and Yaakov were externally twins, then necessarily the only difference between them was an internal difference. That's the same thing with the Jewish people and the nations of the world. We are a different entity. I hope we're a different entity because we have three arms and only have two. Okay, maybe that's the only difference. But being that we look externally exactly like them, that means that the only difference is the internal difference, which on the one hand is the most significant difference, on the other hand is the most easy to lose, to lose track of, etc. That's why Yaakov, when Esau offers him, hey, let's go back together, we'll hang out after the uh, after their Yaakov gives him the bribe, etc. Yaakov says, no, no, you, you go, you go ahead, you do your thing. I'm gonna do my thing. I can't, I can't be, can't be mixed with you. Um, Okay, so what is it, in other words, what is the thing that wine does? Wine helps a person go connect, and remember, we said it connects your mind or your soul to your heart. Now the question is, which one's going to go where? Is your mind or your soul going to go down, drag down towards your heart or towards your body? Or is your heart and your emotions going to be elevated to connect up to the mind and your soul? Well, what's the distinction? We, we, how do we know which one's going to happen? Answer is, where's your balance of gravity? Gravity is obviously a, uh, you know, in, in quotation marks, right? Which one is the heavier of the two? Which one, you know, if you have a tug of war between two people, right? The, the, the determination of who gets pulled towards whom is 
Who's the heavier? The lighter one is going to get pulled towards the heavier. The one that's rooted in the ground is going to stay, and the one that's not rooted in the ground is going to slip along. So the point is, the more of an internal person someone is, the more connected you are to your spirituality, the more tsunua you are, modest, thoughtful, meditative, the more, when you do drink, your emotions are going to be pulled up towards that internality. As opposed to the more external of an environment and the more external of a person it is, the more likely that the little bit of spirituality and a little bit of thoughtfulness that they have is just going to get dragged out into the world. Okay, now we spoke about the ayin and the aleph, the relationship between ayin and aleph, that the aleph can have a relationship with the ayin where it directs the ayin. Okay, so now we mentioned the Sanhedrin are 70 members. They're called the Ene Hador, right? So wait a second, isn't that bad? Doesn't that mean that they're fully externalized like the 70 nations of the world? By the way, just to speak this out, what does 70 or 7 have to do with externalization? And so the physical world is built from seven blocks, seven days you know, of, of, of creation. Each day has 10 aspects to it. So that's, that's 70. That's why there's 70 nations of the world. That means every facet, every aspect that can be is there. So the Sanhedrin, we know Mordecai was a member of the Sanhedrin. Mordecai spoke all 70 languages. Right? So he was able to relate to all the 70. So why didn't that make him an external person? Answer is because they are united in that they're not just 70 wise men. They're 70 Ha'eda. They're the eyes of the congregation. They're all representatives of the Jewish people. There's one thing called the Jewish people that unites all 70 of them and gives them that connection. So again, wine is this power of 70. Yayin is numerical value 70. If it could be united, kept together, which is what we spoke about. On the one hand, uh, a cluster of grapes has all these many grapes. On the other hand, there's that central stem that pulls them all together into one. That's the das. But let's say if you pluck all the grapes off, 70 grapes off the cluster, there's little tiny berries that go rolling in all directions. That's it. The whole thing is completely scattered apart. There is an incredible midrash. It says that Bilam HaRasha was looking to counteract what the power of Abraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, what they did for Hashem. He was looking to counteract that. How many Mizbachos, how many altars did Bilam build? Seven, exactly. So seven Mizbachos. How many Mizbachos did Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov build? So Avram built four, Yitzhak built one, and Yaakov built two. That's seven Mizbachos that they built. So Midrash says that Bilam said, they, the three of them, built seven altars for you. I'll build for you seven Mizbachos myself. Right? And counteract that. Right? 
So, obviously that didn't work out very well for him. Why? Because seven is a double-edged sword. It can be very powerful towards helping connect a person to spirituality, or it can be the opposite. It can be full externalization. What's the difference? If there's some sort of a uniting force, right? So with Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, three of them were working together towards, towards the goal of expressing Hashem. Bilam just did all seven through, you know, just, I'm just going to bring so many carbonos, I'm going to pour so many wine libations, I'm going to do so much oil offerings, and the physicality of it is going to do that. That's the opposite, right? So that's why, that's why, obviously, Bilam mirrors us, right? There was no prophet in the Jewish in the Jewish people like Moshe. More as Medaic in the Jewish people there wasn't, but amongst the nations of the world there was. But the point is, Bilam is like a mirror image. Moshe is like the Aleph, and Bilam is like the Ayin. Yeah, like Moshe, he's like Moshe, but not in the Jewish people who are an Aleph, who are united, who are one, but rather amongst nations of the world, which is the Ayin, which is the seventy, right? So. How could seven in itself has both uniting and? It doesn't specify. Seven is is everything. Right? But the question is, if there's some force to unite them, right? Whether it be the the Ada, the congregation, or you know, Yerushalayim, or or whatever it is that's being done for that reason, some sort of a connection, the an Aleph. So, then so the it'll power be like, of seven in the good is the aleph. Exactly. That's, if there's an aleph to direct the ayin, then the ayin is great. But if it's an ayin by itself, it's it, it, it's very bad. Okay. So so Mordechai is called Bilshan. Bilshan is the Gibor says not only he. So says, why is he called Bilshan? Says because he spoke seventy languages. Whereas no, that can't be. All the members of the Sanhedrin spoke seventy languages. To get admitted to the Sanhedrin, you had to speak all the languages. The Gemara says, no, no, no. Not only he spoke all the 70 languages, he understood the root of all 70 of them. He could like merge all of them together into one, so to speak. That's, that's the Aleph above that Ayn. For him, all the 70 languages, he understood how one could unite all the 70 nations under the rulership of Hashem. That's why Mordechai ruled, you know, afterwards, you know, by the end of the story, Achishverosh retires to, you know, his drinking feast, etc. And Mordechai rules the 127 uh, city-states across the whole world. Because he can unite all of that. Yeah. Right. You can't. You don't mingle. I'll give you. I'll give you a very good example. A king is meant to direct his people. However, if a king, like you know, is hanging out at the local bar, that's a big no-no. Right, he's supposed to be separate from them. 
he's royal. He's he's different. If if he's gonna be, you know, kind of doing that, then then okay, then why should we follow you? You know, you're not different from us, right? He's in his palace. He's doing his whatever things that kings do. He's thinking about the people. He cares about the people. He's directing the people, but he has to stay separate from them. Speaking of kingship, so of course the grape vine is used by the sages to represent the the Davidic line, right? The the, the Malchus based David is represented as a grape vine. Why? Because it's twisted and the you know the, the way that Hashem expresses his you know in the world is through uh, you know the, the, something so awesome and so incredible as Mashiach is not going to come in. There's too much opposition from negative forces in the world for it to just kind of come in naturally. That's why David was this. There's questions about his lineage, about his birth. Is he? Is he maybe an illegitimate child of his father or not? Questions about Shlomo's birth as well. Because such a great neshama can't come into the world in a perfectly normal way. There would be too much, uh, too much opposition. Um, okay, so back, so back, to, the, so back to, the, to the feast, right? What's the salvation of the Jewish people? Is Esther Hamalka. Esther the queen, right? Now, what's the biggest danger? What, Esther the Malka, she's a young lady when she's taken by Ahasuerus. She becomes the queen of the empire. He's giving her everything. Is she going to listen to Mordechai or not? Is she going to stay connected to Mordechai or not? In other words, she's this banquets and this jewelry and this clothing and there's all these 70 things that could attract a young lady. Everything you could possibly imagine. Is she going to manage to stay connected to Mordechai? Is she going to be able to listen to his advice and his guidance even though, you know, it's so... Challenging, and she's potentially, you know, throwing her life away and everything, right? And she do, and she does. She's able to stay connected, right? That's the that's the geula of Purim, is to be able to be in the physical world, in the most concrete physical external world, and yet stay connected upstairs to Mordechai, right? Stay faithful. That's that's the equivalent of drinking and not getting drunk, not losing your head, staying connected. Okay, so the so that the, you know that's that's uh, of course. What happens when a person drinks is it polarizes things? It means to say, as long as People are not drinking, so we're all compartmentalized. Uh, some people are a little bit more 
spiritually connected, anchored, some people a little bit less, but like we mentioned last time, we have a narrow little neck, big head, big body, so there's, this world is operating over here, this world is operating over here, and uh, again, not so clear uh, the distinctions. Also, when people drink, and now, imagine, right, that channel gets opened up, right? The communication between the heart and the mind increases significantly, and some people become elevated. The, the, the entire, even, even their, their emotions enter into the service of Hashem. And some people become animals, right? That's this polarization that we see the, with uh, the difference between the, how, what the seven altars did for Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, what they did for Bilam, right? What the um, drinking feast did for Haman, where, where the drinking feast that Esther made for Haman, she made it for him with two drinking feasts with Ahasuerus. Why is she doing that? Answer is because Esther is saying, let me show you who he really is. Let me show you what he really is. When he's going to be drinking, right, he's going to reveal his true colors. So what happens, he comes in, and he, in the, the next morning, and Ahasuerus asks, what should be done for a man that the king wants to honor him? And Haman says, he should be paraded around through the center of city, on the king's horse, wearing the king's clothes, with the king's crown on his head. Whoa. King's crown on his head? You know what that means? It means you want to be king. <laughs> I mean, how many show his true colors? Right there and then, he was a dead man. Henceforth, things changed. Yeah? Take, it to look, take a look at the Mepharshim, because some of the Mepharshim even point out that right away afterwards, when Haman restates himself, he omits the statement of the crown. No longer says the crown on his head. Because he saw Akashverish's face when he said that. Yeah? But the point is, so Esther understood. You get, Haman drinks, he's going to go down. He's going to go into that direction. So we make a drinking feast, right, to show we can drink and we can, we, we can withstand this thing. Now, interestingly, this drinking of non-Jewish wine, is it, a, is it a, a Torah prohibition or is it a rabbinical prohibition? What was the first time that the harem against non-Jewish wine was made? You never guess, unless you know the unless you know the midrash Pirkei Derebiliyazer. Pirkei Derebiliyazer says Pinchas made it. Hmm. Where? How? Where do we see that? The, what? With the Midian of uh, with the daughters of Midian, exactly. So where do we see that he made the he made the harem? It says Pinchas stood up and he took the romach in his hand. Romach is a spear. Says he took a Romach, and Romach says that Pirkei Rebbe Eliezer is Osios Cherem. Reish Mem Ches. Cherem Ches Reish Mem. So he picked up the spear 
in the physical sense, and went and killed uh, Zimri and Cosby. But he also, at the same time, instituted a harem against non-Jewish wine. Why? Why is he instituting that? There was no need for it before. And says before you weren't mixing with you weren't mixing with them before, so you were safe. You were in a strong physical place, a spiritual place. I mean, where there wasn't a concern you're going to get dragged dragged down to physicality. But now that we've seen you slip, now that we've seen you dragged down into physicality, now Pichas sees you, this can't continue. You, you 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 can't you can't drink that wine anymore. Yeah, so the point is the the question is how strong are the Jewish people in their spirituality, certainly uh, then again, you know, that uh, the Jewish people kind of managed to pick themselves back up, there was no need for, it was felt there was no need for this harem, then the harem was reinstituted again, um, and then, and then, uh, and then finally it took absolute hold um, in the days of uh, under the Roman exile, under the Roman rule, and henceforth, as long as we are in exile, for sure, right? Exile means we're under their dominion. We definitionally cannot be entirely separate. We are influenced by their culture, by their mentality, by, by everything of theirs. So therefore, even... You know, any touching of, of, of the wine will immediately um, introduce these foreign, these, these uh, forces that are going to draw us down into, down into the world. So that's why it's so important uh, to stay away uh, from it. Any time during the... When Mashiach comes, maybe things are going to be different. Um, does she need to have a mishnah for Haman? I mean, it wasn't the first time he's drunk with the king, obviously. But did, did she need to have that iron directing the, the olive directing the iron in order to get him to really show him? That's interesting. So I don't know. So first of all, if we think about it, you see the level of excitement that Haman had from the invitation to these to these feasts of theirs, right? I was invited by the queen, to, just the king and the queen and me. Like he, this was clearly the pinnacle of his. So you know, uh, seemingly, I mean, if the king is throwing a feast for everybody. Sure, no problem. But but literally, like this, this was this uh, this was a clearly a unique event. So um, it, I don't think that this is a case of the eye, of the olive directing the ayin, because the olive directing the ayin is a good thing, right? Just like the olive directing. The Zion is a good thing. Zion is seven, Aleph is one. So Aleph in front of a Zion is us. Like us, Yeshir Moshe, right? It's a, it's, a, it's a very incredible thing. It's numerical value eight from a higher world. It means when the Aleph is able to direct the Ayin, that's a good thing. She, she wasn't able to direct Haman. Haman, Haman was, a, was a Russian. Right? So she said, here, you do your thing, yeah, show your colors, right? So that's the, 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 you know, the big distinction between Jewish drinking, non-Jewish drinking. What we're trying to do is we're trying to 
get so connected and of course this is gonna take work right we have we have uh, less than a week until Purim right but to think to process to contemplate what it means if you were almost annihilated Hashem saved us to think about this so much there's so much of this thought of that when we when we're so rooted in that spirituality that when we do open up those the, you know, the communication the gates between the mind and the heart by drinking wine right is going to be what the Gemara says Chayv Inish Libusumi person's obligated Libusumi what's Libusumi mean? anyone? exactly it means literally translates people translate it uh, loosely as as uh, to get drunk right but but literally means to be to become fragrant right it means where your internality even is going out and beyond you your 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 fragrant this is a instead of becoming stinky and filthy right mm-hmm. so the point is um of course to try to stay away from any exposure any thoughts of outside garbage and nonsense before that try to become Sanua people Esther Esther Malka is the symbol of Tznit of modesty right Vatilbush Esther Malka Vatilbush Begged Malchus right she she she, she clothed she, I mean literally means she put on the royal clothing but but I understand it means she she literally Enrobed herself in royalty, in, in, in kingship, which is modesty. The, 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 she was untouchable in that regard. Okay? That, that, that's why she was so beautiful. You know, her beauty came from her modesty. Right? And modesty means a, a, a deep connection to, the, to something higher. A person hides their physicality so that they can focus on their spirituality. Person who's not modest, that their physical bodies hanging out like we saw with Noah, right? With all of his private parts exposed, so then he's completely begolu. He's totally exposed. He's not an internal person. He's an exiled person, externalized person. Esther was an internalized person. That's why she was the vehicle for the salvation of the Jewish people. That's uh, that's all we want to say. Any questions? The point about the spear. Yes. The language connection. I didn't catch it. Spear in Hebrew is romach. Reish, mem, ches. Those three letters also, when rearranged, spell the word cherem. Ches, reish, mem. Cheirem means a, a prohibition. Like, meaning the prohibition that the Pinchas decreed on wine. So he picked up the spear, he picked up the, the, the enactment of the prohibition. Because of the fact that Jewish people got involved with the daughters of Midian, which of course is the total opposite of Esther, right? 
revealing themselves, flirting, seducing, and that's led to non-Jewish wine, or was led, or non-Jewish wine led to them, which is and what, which is what came to solve uh, Balak's problem after Bilam failed. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. That's what Bilam advised them to do. Yeah. Seven, the seven is Bahot, is Bahot and do it, so. Right, so the same thing. So they take that approach again with the women, yeah, and with the wine. It's weird that Dylan lived for so long. In general, he was there during the exile of Egypt, advising the pharaoh. Um, what do you mean? He's advising Paro to throw the Jewish boys into the into the. Oh, oh, hold on. He's advising Paro to throw the Jewish boys in the in the in in, in, in the canal, right into the river, right? That's right around Moshe being born. Right, Moshe was so. So that so. I mean, let's say he's twenty years older than Moshe. Okay, so he lived one hundred and forty years. No, but weren't you saying that? Not that crazy. Were you just? I thought I'm sorry, but you said that Dylan was also around in the pool. No, so he was already dead by now. Remember, um, Pinchas killed him. No, no, no. Pinchas, right, this is during the days of Moshe. Still in the desert. As she says, they killed, I mean, they, the Pinchas and the people that were with him killed, killed Bill by the edge of the sword. I mean, they executed, by the edge of the sword means, means, a, means a, a decapitation, a, execution by the sword. I'm assuming Pinchas did the honors. So, so Esther does drink non-Jewish wine. I'm, I, I, I'm not aware of her drinking wine. Where do we see her drinking wine? She clearly was not a very fully active participant in the whole party scene. That's uh, right. But remember something: Akashverish didn't know that she was Jewish. Right. I would assume she wasn't drinking, unless she smuggled in like a little bit of kosher wine. But yeah, certainly I would imagine she was she not drinking. Probably wasn't in the drinking mood. Yeah.